Welcome to the BC Podcast, featuring a weekly message from Believer's Church in Warren, Ohio. For more information, visit www.believers.cc. One of the things that Lori and I had the privilege of doing was uh, just pastoring for many, many years. And um, there was probably a time, and I want to guess that for at least a decade or more, where it was pretty common uh, for us to have people over to our house like two to three times a month and sometimes every week. And that could be like individuals, that could be families, that could be, you know, youth groups, connect groups, for me. And we loved it. We loved the hanging out part. It was a blast. But let me tell you something. I have three sons. Let me tell you what me and my sons particularly did not like. My wife would always say on the day the guests were coming over, let's all do a quick cleanup. How many of that means nothing? That's like having a pastor say, I'm about to end my sermon. I mean, that means nothing. You know what I mean? It's like, it means anything. And it's like, so we'd go, oh my God, and we'd do it. But we knew not to complain because it could get worse if you complained, right? And of course, I'm trying to set the example. So I'm really biting my lip. But we would clean up and we would do all this stuff. And then, of course, there's the tear down afterwards. You know, my, my task was to break down tables and I always mop, you know, swept and mopped the floors. We all had our part, right? So none of us liked that, man. We did not like that, but we did like the hanging out part. And here's another thing. One of my sons, I don't think he does it as much now, but he was like famous for just not wanting to wear anything but his athletic shorts. Like, you know, nine months out of the year, you know, this kid was just in shorts, no shirt, no shoes. And so we'd have to like prep him and say, hey, you know, we have guests coming over, so you actually probably need to put a shirt on. And maybe some shoes, because it's not appropriate for you to like sit down with us here with no shirt. It's, it's not going to fly. Why did we do all this stuff? We did all this stuff because we had guests coming over. I mean, we have guests coming over. You also teach your kids to be on their best behavior. That's when you say to them, when they start to bring up something, you're like, didn't we talk about that earlier? That's code for like, shut up. <laughs> Don't say a word or you're in trouble. And it doesn't mean that we were being phony or fake or not keeping it real. It's just that we, we want to be on our best behavior when guests are coming to dinner. Well, you know, one of the things that I know is that in the church world, um, we want to be able to bring guests to our table, don't we? And if we want to bring guests to our table, and we talked about this last week, that one of the things you have to realize is the word table in the scriptures is used multiple times as a spiritual metaphor for a place where we meet to fellowship with one another and with the Lord, like in Psalm 23. But one of the things you have to realize is the table, or I should say this, the table is a metaphor also for the church. It's a place where people come to get fed. And in John 6, 35, I'm not going to elaborate on this very much. We did last week. It says this, I am the bread that gives life, and no one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who has faith in me will ever be thirsty. We believe that at this table... We're offering up the one thing that no one else in the world can offer up. No other home, no other restaurant can offer this up. We believe we're offering the bread that gives life. And that's that one thing that people are in a search for, whether they know it or not. People are trying to fill that void and that hunger and that thirst with other things. But really, Jesus is the only one that can do that. And so the church is a table. Now, here's the thing. No matter who you are here today, whether you're here every week, or whether this is your first week, you're actually sitting in one of the chairs, imaginary chairs, remember, around this table today, okay? And so we want to talk about that. Here's the main thing I want to focus on today. It's simply this. If you're aware of the guest chair, 
you grow every chair. If you're where the guest chair, you grow every chair. So I'm going to start out with the two of these chairs. The first one here is a chair we'll spend the least amount of time on, and this is the chair that the pastor or the person ministering sits in. This is the person who's serving up the meal, if you will. That's the dude with the food, right? It's, it's, today, it's me. Uh, next week, Joe Jr. will be bringing it close to the series called The Day. Next week, he'll be the chef serving up the food here. A lot of times, it's Pastor Joe, you know, streaming into us. But regardless of who it is, we're bringing you this bread, and we're bringing you this water that gives life. Now, here's the one thing that I know all of us are aware of is that when you have people seated in every chair at your table, as the person who's serving the food, you have to work a lot harder. Absolutely. If you're just preaching to the choir, you don't have to think very much. But if you've got to think about that person who's walking into your church today who's maybe agnostic or atheist or whatever, or maybe they're not quite sure if they believe, we have to have them in our mind, don't we? Because they're welcome at this table. The Lord has certainly invited them to his table, and we want them to know that they're welcome, but we need to be thinking about them. And so when we're preparing the food, we need to be thinking about who's sitting at this table, not just the choir, all right? And that's kind of important. Now, I want to talk about chair one, and chair one is right here, and chair one is our guest chair. And so if you're here today and you're visiting for the first time, you're actually sitting in this chair. Now, some of you that have come and sat in this chair today, I mean, you have a church background. Maybe you've been in church your whole life or for most of your life. But some of you sitting in this chair today, you don't even know how to spell church. You know what I mean? You don't know what you're supposed to do. And so it's like the bottom line is whether you believe or not, background, church background or not, you are welcome in our guest chair. Here's what you may not realize. Only 1% of the churches in America have a guest chair. Now, what I didn't say was guests don't come to those churches. I didn't say that. But those churches have not prepared their table for their guests. So there's really no seat for them. So they come in, and those are the people that get really confused by everything. And we'll just elaborate on that a little bit later. But here's the thing that I found out is that, and we're pro-church. In fact, Wednesday night, we prayed for all the churches in this area. But... I found out through experience that there are a lot of really good people with really good intentions, and they're in churches where their focus has become completely inward. They've lost any kind of outward focus at all. They do what I call cater to the already convinced. Every message is to the choir. And here's how I found this out about myself. Now, how many of you know sometimes... We can be hard on ourselves when we try to, you know, assess how we're doing, right? Like, I can think I'm doing really good on a diet until I pull out, pull out my fitness pal. And then the facts don't lie. And I remember years ago, um, I audited a course at a, at a local seminary. Um, there was a man there that I really respected by the name of Dr. Jim Toll. He planted churches in South America and North America. And this guy had a track record where everywhere he went, I mean, churches blew up. I can tell you in the valley I pastored, he took a church that had 50 people for five consecutive years, had not grown, and within five years they had 5,000. That's unusual. But God had taught him some things, and he was sharing that with us pastors. And so one of the exercises he gave to us is he said, I want you to go home, and I'm not going to bore you with the details of this course, but he took each thing that we did, each ministry, and it was divided into one of three categories. 
Now, one of the categories was what I would call an outward-focused category. Now, I don't know if the other pastors were like me, but I thought I had been doing pretty good. If you'd have said, how outward-focused is your church? I would have said, oh, we're very outward-focused. We're very outward-focused. But when I listed all the ministries in our church, and there were quite a few of them, do you know only two of them actually made it into the outward-focused category? And those two ministries were not very effective. Honest assessment. And you know what I realized? I realized what every pastor realizes is that the longer your church is in existence, the more of a tendency there is for that church to become inward-focused instead of outward-focused. And when you're inward-focused and not outward-focused, you become unhealthy. As a matter of fact, um, one of my wife's uh, seminary professors, he had a couple of PhDs, and one of them was in uh, marriage and family therapy. And he was a brilliant guy. My wife and I got to know him and his wife. He came and did some teaching for us, some marriage teaching at our church, and just a great guy. And uh, one of the things that he said to his class one time is he said, people are essentially built for war. People are essentially built for battle and to fight. And the problem is in the church world, when their focus is not outward, it becomes inward, and they turn on each other. And I said, well, after pastoring for enough years, I think that actually makes sense to me. See, if you're aware of the guest chair, you're going to grow every chair, but you're also going to be a healthy church. And that's one of the things I love about being part of this church. You know, I suppose I could have chose to be a part of a number of churches, but I had no hesitation when this, when this staff said, we want you to be part of us, because you know what? This is the kind of church I want to be a part of. We are a chair one church. So chair one is for these, these guests. Some of you might be that guest today. But what we want to do here, our goal is to move you from chair one all the way over to chair two. And chair two is our new convert chair. All right? And that's the chair for people who have just made a decision. They're what the Bible calls spiritual babies. 1 Corinthians 3.1 says, Brothers and sisters, walk in... Or in the past, I could not talk to you as I talked to spiritual people. I had to talk to you as I would to people without the Spirit, babies in Christ. I'm going to stop right there. How many of you know babies make a lot of messes? I mean, my granddaughter, I, my, my, my daughter-in-law, they have us on this photo app, and so God bless her, I appreciate her. She posts a couple of pictures and videos every day, and we religiously watch them. <laughs> And the other day, it was my son, and she goes, this is what happens when your daughter poops so much that your son can't do his workout at the gym. And my son is sitting there with his granddaughter, with my granddaughter doing squats, and she's loving it. But I mean, you know, I mean, life is messy, right? When they're a baby, life is all about them, right? Even when they're toddlers, how I many you know toddlers don't always play nice with each other? How many you found out all Christians play nice? If they have a toy that's sitting there, and they haven't used it in two hours, but another kid comes to take it, oh, watch out, that's mine. Life's all about me. How many know baby Christians make messes? I remember this one church I was involved in helping to plant. It was a small church, but I'd say probably 95% of the people in there were professionals. You know, they were like doctors and, and dentists and uh, engineers, and, and, and it, you know, they were very cerebral people. They were a lot smarter than I was. And uh, one of the things that, that was a breath of fresh air was we had this guy who was a mechanic that, that got saved. His wife worked for one of the doctors, and he got saved. And he, he was so fun because... He didn't know what he shouldn't do. And I remember him walking up to one of the ladies on the board, and she had a red dress on, and he goes, hey, you look really sexy in that red dress. And she turned red. <laughs> he wasn't church broke, you know. It's like, hey, uh, Bob, we, 
probably, you know, let your wife give the compliment next time. Maybe you shouldn't use the word sexy. Babies make mistakes, man. I mean, they do, and that's how you grow. You, you don't grow by being a perfectionist. You grow when you're willing to make a mistake. If you're not failing, you're not growing, people. If you don't ever fail at anything, you're not trying anything. You're not growing. So I love this. You know, Christmas to me was magical growing up. I mean, I'm like four or five years old, my earliest memories, and, and, and I don't mean to keep boring you with this is where I grew up is in Southern California, and I used to think in my, my four or five-year-old brain, I'd go, how does Santa Claus use this layout here? We don't have snow. And I thought, oh, he must use the fire trucks, you know, because they're red. And, and, but, you know, like you couldn't, you couldn't go to sleep at night. You were so excited about waking up on Christmas morning and opening up the gifts, and then you'd get up before the sun was up, and you'd rush out, and you'd try to, like, suddenly wake your parents up. Come on, so we can open the gifts. And it was, like, magical, right? And then what happens is you grow up, and you start to grow up, and all of a sudden it's like Christmas is still this awesome time, but it's lost its magic. Guess what? Until you have kids of your own. And then they're there, and they're repeating what you did, and all of a sudden the magic comes back in. Can I tell you something that a lot of churches are lacking? Spiritual babies. Spiritual babies, they are messy, and they make a lot of mistakes, but, man, they bring a lot of joy. And, and you know what? That's the kind of church we want to be. Now, talking about how to move from chair one, the imaginary chair one, to chair two, which is to be a new convert, right? Follower of Jesus. And how to move from chair two to chair three. But before we get to chair three, I have found that there is a detour that you have to be very careful of. I want to talk about that detour. This is uh, in honor of all of our Browns fans. Any Browns fans left here today? Let's show that picture. You can get that recliner for $709. I am not selling it, but you can go online and find it. Now, if you're a Browns fan, honestly, truthfully, my hat is off to you because, like, you're amazing. You're amazing that you still love the Browns. And, and they're going to get better. They're going to get better. Um, so... Uh, like this one pastor friend of mine, he's a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and he always says the motto of the Steelers is, we win, we win, we win. He goes, the motto of the Browns is, we rebuild, we rebuild, we rebuild. So, But I do love Browns fans because they're loyal. Uh, but, but my kids knew this. It's kind of funny. Until I moved to Ohio, I had this recliner, and that was my recliner. Nobody in my family sat in that recliner except me. And there was a little something that happened. It's kind of a family joke to this day that when dad pulled the lever and the legs went out and I went back, guess what? I was stuck. I didn't move. I'd be like, hey, while you're in the kitchen, could you bring me a water? Hey, while you're in the kitchen, could you bring me a... Like, I might have been really hungry, but I wasn't hungry enough to go get the sandwich myself. And they would laugh. They're like... They were like, Dad, what are you doing? And that's what happens. If, if you're not careful, you can go from that guest chair to, get, to chair two where you're a new convert and you're this baby, and all of a sudden, but, but you get detoured and you go to the lazy board chair where it's all about, hey, serve me. Take care of me. Church is all about what I can get out of it. Not what I can give, but what I can get out of it, right? And that's a bad place because what happens is you don't grow up in that kind of chair. See, the thing is, is that the, the New Testament uses the word disciple a couple hundred times. We don't use that word. I don't use that word. It'd be better understood as an apprenticeship. When somebody's an apprentice, that means they haven't arrived. They're a learner, right? They're learning their craft. And they're a lifetime learner if they're a disciple of Christ. So we're an apprentice. And here's the thing. In America, there's two discipleship or apprenticeship tracks that churches offer. Here's one track is modeled after our school system. Now, if you're a teacher here, I have a lot of friends who are teachers. I am a fan of you. But you teachers know that very often, what are you required to do? 
you're required to get your kids ready to take what? Those tests that are coming. And if your kids don't do well, it's on you. Am I right? So you may want to teach them something else, but you've got to teach them what's required on the test. Because our system is designed like this in the West, that you get all this information, regurgitate it for a test, and then forget you ever knew it. Which is why we can have, we can have professors at business schools who've never owned their own business. They don't know what it's like to sweat a payroll. They don't. Now, I'm not saying they're not good people. They're probably great people. But my point is, is our style of learning in the church sometimes replicates the world. And so we have this Western thing, which is like, hey, at my church, I went through these courses, and now I'm a mature disciple because I learned all this information. It's knowledge-based. Discipleship is different. Discipleship is obedience-based in the Bible, where you learn through trial and error. Listen, how many of you in here are fans of Eugene Peterson? I certainly am. He's the author of the Message Translation. Brilliant man, brilliant in the languages of the Bible. Listen to what he says about a disciple. He said he's a learner, not in the academic setting of a schoolroom, rather at the work site of a craftsman. We do not acquire information about God, but skills in faith. Watch this. If I read a book on how to lay bricks, does that mean I'm qualified to come to your house and you pay me Give me money to do a job to lay bricks at your house. How many of you want me to lay bricks at your house just because I read a book on it? I hope not. Because you know what? It's a lot different when I got to get out there and mix the mortar. Just because I know something doesn't mean I'm actually capable of doing it. And there's a difference. In Colossians 3 verse 2, let's go back to that scripture. It says, the teaching I gave you was milk, not solid food, because you were not able to take solid food, and even now you're not ready. What is he saying? He's saying, as a teacher, I recognize that when I came to you before, some time ago, you were like a baby. And if I tried to give you a steak, if I gave a steak to a baby, he'd choke on it, or she'd choke on it. He's saying, you weren't ready for it. He goes, but now I've come back all these months later, I find out that you have not progressed at all. You haven't gone from chair two to three. You're stuck there. I, I stopped to give you milk. Well, the book of Hebrews 5 says that while you should have been teachers of others, I'm having to come back and give you milk. And it says the reason for that is you have not practiced what you heard. Because growth comes through practicing what you hear. I want to look at a passage here in the Gospel of Luke in just a moment. The most prolific sermon that Jesus ever preached that we know of, that was recorded, is found in the Gospel of Matthew. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's all the Beatitudes. Blessed are, are, are the merciful, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. You know, turn the other cheek. Pray for your enemies. Go the extra mile. All these incredible truths about the kingdom, about prayer. It's three chapters long. It's his most prolific sermon that he ever preached. It is a vault, a treasure chest of the, the treasures of heaven. But I want you to notice something. At the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, he tells a story to cap off this sermon. We're going to read that story that Jesus tells, but we're going to read Luke's version of that story. And I want to lay context for, for how he's giving this truth out. And listen to what he says. These words in Luke 6, 47, these words I speak to you are not mere additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundation words, words to build a life on. If you work the words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who dug deep and laid the foundation of his house on bedrock. And when the river burst its banks and crashed against the house, nothing could shake it. It was built to last. So Jesus is saying, hey, there's two kinds of people that are here listening to my message today. See, all of us are in his parable somewhere. All of us are in this story somewhere because we're all hearing. 
And then there's a wise and a foolish person, and that's determined by what they do with what they hear. And Jesus, growing up in the home of a carpenter and having that skill, he knew a little bit about building. And he said, if you want to build a house, you've got to dig down till there's bedrock and then build on that foundation. And then he goes on to say, there's another person, though, that's going to hear the same message, sat in the same synagogue, the same church, and listen, it says in verse 49, but if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, you're like a dumb carpenter who built a house but skipped the foundation, and when the swollen river came crashing in, it collapsed like a house of cards. It was a total loss. See, here's what I found out. Whether you believe in Jesus, don't believe in Jesus, have faith in God, don't have faith in God, godly, ungodly, all stripes, sides, storms in life are going to hit everybody. We're all going to have storms come, tests and trials. Having faith in Jesus will not stop bad things from coming against you. But what you have built your house on in those moments decide whether, they determine whether or not that house will stand or fall. Because from the outside, from the outside, a lot of houses look just the same until pressure hits. And then, bam, the wheels start to come off. That house begins to collapse. you got to dig down. How do you dig down? By putting into practice what you're hearing. That's how you go from chair two to chair three. And what is chair three? Chair three is the Christ follower's chair. This is the chair that the Bible says in Romans 12. And these are people who are living their lives as a living sacrifice. They're, they're living life on the altar of sacrifice. These are the people that have made us able to sit in this building today. These are the people that have made that meeting with the contractors next week possible. They've made the additional parking possible. They've made all the renovations that are going to happen possible. They've made everything possible because these are people who got the idea of sacrifice. They gave sacrificially to make this happen. They're here today not just to receive, but they're giving. They're giving to us. They're giving to our children. They're giving in many different capacities. Their, their life is no longer just about them. They're people who don't just care about themselves, but they care about others. They have not only an inward focus, but they now have an outward focus. And that's the kind of people that we want to grow up to because when you grow up, right, you start serving others. Life is no longer just all about me. It's outward focus. We talked about this last week, but Jesus was called by his enemies a friend of sinners. That was not meant to be a compliment when they said it. Because here's what they didn't understand. They thought they knew God, but they did not understand that Jesus did not come to bring an exclusive kingdom, but an inclusive kingdom. He said in his own words on multiple occasions, I did not come to coddle insiders, but to invite outsiders into a changed life from the inside out. That's what he said. And think about this, the king of the kingdom. You realize the gospel that Jesus preached was the gospel of the kingdom. The king of this kingdom is Jesus. And he sets the culture of the kingdom. And the culture of the kingdom is one of invitation and inclusiveness. He says, whoever wants to come to my table, there's room at my table for you to come and to sit. I have a place with your name on it. Come. And I want to look at this parable, last scripture we'll look at today, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. And in this parable, it says that there's this very wealthy man, a great master, 
and he's going to have this big party, big dinner party. And so what he does, as is custom in their day, he sends out a save-the-date invite. Here's a save-the-date invite. They don't text. They don't have phones. They don't have emails. Nothing on social media. So this is what they do. Here's the date. We're going to have a big feast. And then what they would do is when the food was ready, they would send the servant out and say, hey, we didn't know when it was going to be exactly ready, but it's ready now. Come and get it. And so the servant goes out and says, hey, the food is hot. It's ready. We're ready to go. The master says, come. Your place is at the table. And it says that all he got were a bunch of lame excuses. Hey, you know what? I bought some property. I got to go check it out. Hey, I bought some farm equipment. I got to go check it out. Hey, I just got married. I got to go home and hang out with my wife. We pick up that story in verse 21. Then the servant went back and told the master what had happened. And he was outraged and told the servant, quickly get out into the city streets and alleys. Collect all who look like they need a square meal. All the misfits and homeless and wretched you can lay your hands on and bring them here. How many know there was no pre-qualifying here? Just grab them. Invite them. They're welcome. And the servant reported back, Master, I did what you commanded, and there's still room at the table. There's still room at the table. And then the master said, Then go into the country roads, and whoever you find, drag them in. I want my house full. Let me tell you, not one of those who originally invited was invited is going to get so much as a bite of my dinner. Guys, that's a picture of the heart of our Father. That He's saying, please go out into the highways and the byways, as we used to say in, in the King James, and let people know there's a place at the table of the Lord for you. That Jesus pre-qualified you to come and sit at this table. Now here's something you may or may not realize, but the servant in that story today is you and me. Those of us who have come to know the Master and the Father, our job is now the job of the person to go out and to invite people to come in. We, we don't force anyone, but we just let them know about it. And just like in that day, not everyone's going to say yes. But did you know Thomas Rainier, who's a church expert, when, he's done, when he studied invitations, he said that 9 out of 10 people will come to a church if they're invited. But here's another fact for you that he says. Only 2% of Christians in North America actually ever invite anyone to church. Now, that's not to condemn anyone here. Why is that? Well, I had my own reasons for why I became that way. And I can tell you my reasons, but let me tell you what I think it is. A lot of Christians have learned not to invite their friends, coworkers, neighbors, and so on to church because there's no chair for them. When they come, they don't get it. In fact, when I, used to, I was a worship leader. When I invited people to the church I was the worship leader in, I used to give them four disclaimers. I said, hey, when you walk in, so-and-so is going to do this, this is going to happen, and it's going to sound a little crazy. I'd have to like, give them disclaimers. Andy Stanley, if you don't know who he is, Andy Stanley is one of the most prominent pastors in all of America. He pastors North Point Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And his dad is a famous television pastor by the name of Dr. Charles Stanley. And uh, he said that he loved the church, grew up in the church, was all about the church. And he said there, there came a point, though, when he was a young adult that he invited a friend of his to church with him one day. And he goes through the whole service. He had to keep saying, uh, we don't normally do this, but here's why he's doing that. Oh, uh, I know that doesn't make sense to you, but here's what that means, and this is why. He said, I had to literally give him a running commentary through the whole service, or he would have just said, this is like somebody speaking a foreign language. This is like Graham Cather's trying to take AP calculus in high school. What? <laughs> no. Foreign language. And you know what he said to himself? At that time, the seed was planted. He said, someday, I would love to start a church that the unchurched love to come to. That was 20 years ago. 
and some 36,000 worshipers every weekend worship at that church that he wanted to start. And they continued to flourish because they're a chair one church. They thought about the guest. They're outward focused. And listen, what I want you to understand something here about Believer's Church, if you don't know our DNA and our culture, is listen, behind the scenes, we have a creative team. We have people, yes, we pray first. Everything is driven by prayer first. Make no mistake about it. We do not make that mistake here. It's driven by prayer. The topics are driven by prayer, but we allow people to unleash their creativity and do a lot of things because why? We want to have a partnership with you. It's a tag team effort so that I know you can lead people into the way of Christ all on your own without our help, but many people, it's so easy to just invite them to your church if you have a partnership, and here's the partnership. We create an environment that's easy for you to bring your friends into. And we present the gospel of the kingdom. That doesn't mean you can't and shouldn't along the way share your testimony. You should. But it's a partnership. When we do that, we end up becoming a very, very healthy church. See, all of us are influencers. And I'm going to try and land the plane here. All of us are influencers. Do you know that John Maxwell did a study a number of years ago, and I would think that it might even be higher today, but the time he did this study was about 15 years ago, I believe. He found that the most introverted person will influence about 10,000 people in their lifetime if they're an introvert. That was before the explosion of social media. How many know every, every single day we influence people? Because our lives constantly intersect with certain people. And, and, and we bring influence through every text we send. Our social media posts are influencing people. Our, our phone calls, our emails, our interactions are influencing people. And it's, it's, it's about leveraging that influence for the kingdom of God. I don't mean manipulating people, but you leverage it because you have an outward focus and because you're very aware that Jesus is still looking to invite people to his table. And so his heart is your heart. And I'm telling you, if you're willing to do that, your invite can change lives. And see, it can be intimidating, but it doesn't really have to be because we're going to make that commitment to you that when you bring them here, we'll take good care of them. I want to try and close out with, with two very brief stories. Um, so we moved from chair one, the guest chair, to chair two, the new convert chair, to chair three, the Christ followers chair. Most of you probably heard this name. I'm going to bring up here in a second, but... Um, on April 18th, 1775, there was a stable boy and uh, he was doing his job and he overheard two British officers say these words, there's going to be hell to pay tomorrow. And he immediately ran to the home of a silversmith he knew by the name of Paul Revere and told him what he overheard these officers say. And Paul and other people had been noticing that there seemed to be a lot of last-minute preparation going on by the British. So he met with his friend Joseph Warren. He said, what are we going to do? He goes, we know they want to arrest Samuel Adams. We know they want to arrest John Hancock. We know they want to seize the ammunition that we have and the guns we have stored in Concord. What can we do? They devised a plan. So at 10 o'clock that night, Paul Revere set out on that famous ride. He covered 13 miles. And no, he didn't just ride around saying the Redcoats are coming. Apparently, historically, what he actually did was he ran up onto doorsteps and pounded on doors and raised up the leaders of these militias. And, and, and he began to, those regions with all these militia in that 13 miles, they began to be aroused. They began to hear church bells began to ring. Drums began to beat. And the 
militia were awakened. And the next morning when the British rolled in and thought they were just rolling in with no resistance, they rolled in and found a small army prepared for battle. And that army soundly defeated them. The militia defeated them. And that was the start of the American Revolution. He deserves a lot of credit. But how many of you have ever heard of William Dawes? William Dawes was a contemporary of Paul Revere's. In fact, William Dawes did the exact same thing that Paul Revere did. In fact, he didn't ride 13 miles. He rode 17 miles that night, yelling the same things to anyone who would listen that Paul Revere yelled, but with vastly different results. All he could get was one militia group to prepare. Everybody else ignored him. Isn't that something? What, what was the difference? Why, why was Paul Revere so effective and William Dawes so ineffective? To the point that many of you, for the first time you've ever heard his name. What's the difference? Paul Revere was a man who knew everything. He invested in relationships with everyone. He got to know people. And because he would take time to listen and to interact and to get to know people, he was effective because he had a relationship with those people and they listened. William Dawes did not. Who's that crazy guy that just said the redcoats are coming? I don't know. Go back to sleep, honey. I don't know. What am I saying? This can sound real intimidating, but how many of you know every one of us are capable of building bridges for the gospel through relationship. That alone is not enough. But how many know it gives us an open door? And what if we begin to add to those relationships simple prayers? Lord, would you give me an opportunity to be able to invite them or to be able to share my story with them? Would you give me that opportunity, Lord? How many know the Lord is all about answering that prayer? And here's the thing. We're not asking people in this church to bring someone every single week. That's great. If you are that person, hey, I'm going to come. I'm going to buy you a dinner, okay? But here's the point. Here's my challenge to you. Is it possible that two or three times this year you could prayerfully find someone to invite out to one of our services? I think all of us are capable of doing that. And here's the thing that I know. As long as I've been studying this stuff, it's still the same. 97 to 98% of the people who become Christ followers say they came through the witness of a relative, friend, co-worker, or somebody that they knew in their life. That means that only 1% to 2% of the people who are making decisions to follow Christ are coming through what we used to call proclamation gospel. That still does work in some continents. There's still a place for that. But I'm telling you, where we live, 97, 98% of the people are coming because someone took time to build a relationship and leverage the influence of that relationship for Christ. So we want to partner with you. We want to be a chair one church, and we believe that God has sent us here to reach this area. We're not going to reach it alone. God is going to bless many other churches. He's going to do that. But this is something that we think we know how to do because last year in Warren, if I have the stats right, about 43% of the people at that campus had either never gone to church in their life or hadn't been to church in five years. 43% of the people who joined our church. Now, to you guys this means nothing, but I live in this world. That is unheard of for a church that's been in existence longer than 15 years. That is unheard of. Most churches are not even seeing 1% of their people come that way. Not even 1%. 
Why is that? Because somewhere along the road, our pastors got a heart and said, we've got to be outward focused. We've got to have the heart of Jesus, which is, hey, we're on our way to heaven, but let's reach those who have not yet heard that there's a place at the table for them. So if you're aware of the guest chair, you will grow every chair, and I believe more than that, you'll be a healthy church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Um, as we said last week, Lord, uh, we are we're at this table because of who invited us, not because of who we are. There's really nothing we've done to earn it or deserve it, but because of your great mercy, because of your great love, Lord, that you reached out to us, and Lord, we were able to respond to that. So, Father, I just pray today. I pray for myself, Lord. I, I need your help in this. Lord, I'm not an expert. I fail at this all the time. But, Lord, would you give us, would you give us opportunities, Lord, to be able to share the gospel? Would you give us opportunities to share our story? Would you give us opportunities, Lord, to be able to invite people into the kingdom and into this church, to this table, Lord, this year? We're asking that you would give us those opportunities. Lord, would you help us to recognize? Would you help us not to just pray this prayer today, but would you help us recognize when the answers to our prayer walk up to our door or show up in our email or our text? Would you help us to recognize the answers to our prayer when they happen? Because we certainly believe you're going to answer these prayers. So, Father, I pray, give us opportunities in Borden, Poland, Camden, Strathers, Austin Town, Columbia, and all these surrounding areas. Give us opportunities to share the gospel. In Jesus' name. Why every head is bowed, every head is closed. I just want to do one more thing. If you're here today and you've never met Christ in a personal way, you've never experienced his life, his freedom, I want you to know that it's available to you today. And I want you to know that there's nothing you can do to earn it, nothing you can do to, to ever be good enough to get it. That's a waste of time and energy. I want you to know that Jesus loves you right where you're at. And he died to give you life. And this is not just about getting into heaven. Certainly, if you call on his name, Jesus said he'll save you. And yes, your name will be written in the book of life. And yes, you will come into heaven. But this is all about, this is also about heaven getting into you today. That he is the God not just of the future and of eternity, but he's the God who is concerned about what you're going through right now, today. He cares about you wants to be part of your life today and this morning. So if you're here today and you've never made that decision to say yes to Jesus, to follow him, to believe in him, to say, look, I trust in you. And today, I don't want to put my faith in you, but I want to tell you that I'm going to give you the steering wheel to my life. I'm going to make you the Lord of my life. You have the steering wheel. My life is lived under you now. If you've never done that before, today you want to do that. Or maybe you did that a long, long time ago. Somehow or another, you got lost. You lost your way. You forgot about Jesus. And today, you want to you come back. And I want you to do something with me right now. I want you to pray this prayer. It's not some magical prayer. It's just that God listens to our words when we pray. And he's looking at your heart. And listen, if you just simply put your trust in him, that's all he's really asking for you to do. So if you're here and today you're saying, I want to make that decision to follow Jesus, then I want you to pray this prayer with me. And just mean in church, would you help me pray? Just say, Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for my sins, that He rose from the dead. I put all of my trust in what Jesus did.
did on my behalf. I'm not trusting my behavior. I'm not trusting my promises. I'm not trusting my good intentions. I'm not trusting my church attendance. I'm putting all of my faith in what Jesus did when he died on the cross for my sin. Jesus, be Lord of my life. Forgive my sins. Receive me into your kingdom. Amen. Thank you for listening to the BC Podcast. Follow us at A City Connected on Twitter and Instagram to stay updated, inspired, and encouraged.